Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got a huge episode today. Our guest is Stephanie Pomboy, founder of Macro Mavens and one of the top macro minds around. In today's show, Stephanie shares her take on the investment landscape and why she's very concerned about the corporate credit market. Then we get to hear what she thinks about the dollar, gold, and where else she sees opportunity. In reading some of Stephanie's recent research reports, I came across some data points that I haven't seen anyone else talking about. So I'll promise you'll love this episode. Before we get to the show, if you don't already subscribe to the Idea Farm newsletter, go to theideafarm.com to subscribe for free. In our email after this episode is released, you'll get a little teaser from one of Stephanie's recent research reports. Over 90,000 investors subscribe, so join them and subscribe today. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Stephanie Pomboy. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Meb. Great to be with you. Where do we find you today? I am in the in bear country, right where I feel most at home in Colorado. My brother, who's kind of in the foothills around gold and evergreen, loves to send me neighborhood updates when it's like either a mountain lion or a bear in the neighborhood. We don't have much of that here in Los Angeles. It's a change from the critters in New York, for sure. So you got a remote perch uh, which you can see the world, which gives you a non-consensus view. So we're going to start super broad. What's the world look like to you today? What's going on out there in this summer of 2023? Well, I think it's uh, this is kind of a, a fun time to do this podcast because we've had this year, basically, where the Fed has raised rates in unprecedented fashion on an economy that's toting record amount of debt. And initially, the markets realized, hey, this probably isn't going to be really a lot of fun for us. Let's see how this plays out. And have now concluded that basically those rate hikes were a giant yawn and that the economy is not going to have a recession. And basically, the second quarter was the low for profits. And we're going to claw our way back to double-digit profit growth next year. And the Fed will pivot and uh, you're a schmuck if you're not getting along, you know, with everything you got. My sort of self-appointed job, I view as being to identify what's priced into the market and then pick at where that might be wrong, where the opportunities 
lie around where the consensus might be wrong on that. And so when I see everyone who used to be forecasting a recession and just trying to figure out when it was going to happen, taking it off the table and saying, okay, the worst is over, you know, it's all going to be good. I have a fair amount of skepticism about that. And we can go into detail on it. But basically, you know, it just seems to me like basic math at the end of the day. If you take interest rates and you raise them, you know, in record speed and magnitude on an economy that has twice as much debt as it did in 2007, eight, and a corporate sector that has twice as much debt as it did then, you're probably not going to have a better outcome than you have then. And, you know, obviously you have to weigh things like the fiscal stimulus against it, but that seems to be fading in the rearview mirror in terms of the bulk of it. So I think we've got some real headwinds, and I'm happy to go through the details of where I think the real issues lie, but that's my my general thesis. Well, there's a lot of alleyways we're going to go down, but the first being is you had a quote, which I liked, and I'm not sure what you mean by it, so I like to hear it, but you said, even with the pause, you're talking about the Fed, the Fed is still tightening. And that is a crucial nugget that the markets are missing. What do you mean by that? So every day when the Fed raises rates, it doesn't impact anyone until they have to borrow at higher rates. So one of the problems right now, for example, is no homeowner wants to sell their home because it entails going from a 3% mortgage rate to a six and a half, seven percent mortgage rate. No one's going to do that, which is why everyone's hunkering down. So these higher rates that the Fed has engineered only really impact people when they have to pay them. I mean, it sounds like such a stupid thing to say, but it affects the timing of when these rate hikes hit. So, for example, the corporate sector, they have an enormous amount of debt that's been coming due over the course of this year, and they have much more that comes down next year and the year after. So this year, coming into the year, they had somewhere around $650 billion worth of debt that needed to roll over. And next year, it's a trillion, and then it's another trillion in the year after that. So companies, this is why I think you're seeing this record number of corporate bankruptcies, is that you know it was fine until all of a sudden the bonds matured and they had to come out and issue new debt at these higher rates. And a lot of companies just couldn't do it. You know, we had these zombie companies who didn't couldn't even cover their interest expense out of cash flow. So they all, you know, presumably said, all right, I guess we're not going to be able to borrow. We're out of business. And you've seen, as I mentioned, you know, a record number, not a record, the largest number of bankruptcies since 2010. And again, we're just in the early stages of these interest rate hikes actually starting to hit as the debt comes due and people step into this new environment where suddenly rates are twice, in many cases, what they were prior. You know, junk issuers were borrowing at 4% before the Fed started raising rates. And on my Bloomberg here now, junk yields are 840. So, you know, that's a pretty substantial increase in interest expense. And there are a lot of companies that just aren't going to be able to make it. So that was my point about every day that the Fed does nothing. It's still tightening because every day these higher rates start to hit a new swath of people. Plus, there's a second part of it, which is a little bit more, you know, macro. And that's just the law of diminishing marginal returns on debt in general. You know, the U.S. economy has become so addicted to credit 
that we now require more and more credit fuel to go each GDP mile, as it were. And that's in large part because as we've borrowed more and more and more and the debt's gotten bigger and bigger, we've just had to allocate more and more of every marginal dollar towards servicing that debt. So your interest expense keeps going up and up and every new dollar of income you get, you're portioning rather than 50 cents of it to interest expense, 60 cents and then 70 cents and whatever. So it creates this law of diminishing marginal returns where every dollar increase in credit gets you less GDP growth. So in an environment, for example, where the Fed takes rates up and then just holds them there, and let's say credit growth goes to zero, you know, it, you know, in theory, I would say it would go down because you're holding rates at a high level and those rates are resetting. Um, but let's just assume credit growth is zero. Well, that's going to have a huge drag on economic activity. So I like it, in this context, I think of a new paradigm for Fed policy, and that is that there really is neutral is tightening when they're not raising rates because we're in this deep process of diminishing marginal returns on credit, just keeping rates steady is effectively tightening because every day we get less GDP growth out of our credit growth. Raising rates obviously is layering on even more aggressive tightening. So you have a situation where what people perceived as neutral at you know at no change on the policy rate is actually an effective tightening. So I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on that, but I think it's important that people realize that we are long since past the point of diminishing marginal returns on credit. So that also is something that's kind of ignored in this idea that we're not going to have a recession because the Fed's going to pause. Well, all right, if they stop raising rates, that just doesn't compound the damage further, but it doesn't mean things aren't going to slow and get a lot weaker. Yeah. Are there any particular areas? So it could be sectors, companies, or even, you know, the investment grade junk that is particularly concerning to you? Are there areas that look better than others? I mean, I guess in terms of sectors, I tend to beat up the most on the consumer discretionary sector because, you know, we've had this environment where you've seen a huge squeeze on household pocketbooks as inflation has just savaged their their budgets. You know, food and energy outlays just went through the roof, obviously, and housing expenditures. So this and healthcare obviously has always been a major drag. So they're being squeezed hard on that front. And this is another one where Wall Street celebrates the fact the inflation numbers are coming down. But for the regular Joe who's going to the grocery store, he just knows that the price of bacon, you know, doubled in the last year and now it's only gone up another 20 cents, you know, rather than doubling again. He doesn't think it's getting cheaper. So the Fed may declare victory that inflation is coming down toward two. But it doesn't help the consumer at all. You know, their, their prices reset at a much higher level and they just stop going up as fast. So I think that they're having this real squeeze on their budgets. Plus, they're also facing this higher interest expense because a lot of them went from paying down credit card balances during COVID with all the stimulus money they were getting from the government to once that was depleted, running up those credit card balances in record fashion. And they've really added a tremendous amount of credit card debt in the last year at 20% interest rates. I mean, no one's doing that 
because they enjoy borrowing at 20% interest rates. They're doing it because they have no choice but to do that. So I think the consumer is really under real stress. And obviously, that's at the lower end of the consumer chain. And it gets masked by what's happening at the high end, where people tend to be fairly bulletproof. And you go out to restaurants in New York City or LA, and everything's full, and everyone's you know buying fancy bottles of wine, and, and it doesn't seem like there's any kind of recession. But when you come into you know the middle of the country, and you talk to people who don't live in those bubble communities, it's clear that there's there are real issues, and you're seeing it in rising delinquency rates as well across the you know the auto loan delinquency rate, for example, clearly an issue, credit cards as well. So that's an area where I tend to focus on that as a weak spot, and it's one where I get a lot of pushback. I mean, if you look at the forecast for consumer discretionary earnings, it's like these people are in fantasy land. You know, we're talking well into the double digits. And I'm just not sure where consumers are going to get the money to absorb the price increases that companies are going to have to keep passing along to make, to generate those kind of margins, especially if the employment picture is slowing. And we'll find that out shortly. So where do the investment grade and junk spread sit? Is this something that has already been seen in the spreads? Are they blowing out versus T-bills or is it uh, not so much? Well, what's interesting is obviously, you know, you had when we had the risk off on the Fed tightening last year, you saw a real increase in credit spreads alongside the decline in the stock market. And since then, like the risk on in stocks, you've seen a rally in the investment grade and the high yield space. However, it has not in no way kept up with the stock market. The two are sending different signals now. So uh, year to date, I think the S&P is up 18% or somewhere in that magnitude. The investment grade bond yield is exactly unchanged. So it hasn't rallied at all in that stretch. And the JNK, the junk ETF, is down 2% on the year. So the credit market you know, hasn't sold off further, but it's not giving you the signal that the stock market it is that all is clear. And within that uh, junk space and the, you know, the delinquencies we have seen, for example, the high yield or speculative grade default rate is forecast to go to 5% over the next 12 months by Moody's. They just raised that for the third time and however long from three to four to four to five. And that's their base case scenario. Their pessimistic scenario is 13%, which is actually higher than we saw during the global financial crisis. So finally, someone is kind of doing the math that I outlined earlier, that if you have a corporate sector with more debt and you raise rates faster, you know, in shorter fashion, you're probably going to get an outcome that's equal to or worse than that scenario. So Moody's is holding that out as, as a possibility. But getting to the sectors within the the area where you've seen the delinquencies, it has been concentrated in those consumer discretionary companies. So of the bankruptcy filings we've seen this year, 24% were consumer discretionary companies, which is the single largest sector of any of the other sectors for those, those bankruptcies. The media seems very obsessed with the big seven, fantastic seven. I don't know what they call them, the, the giant market cap companies. But you had a quote where you're actually talking about 
cash on the balance sheet where he said the top 10 companies in the S&P hold more cash than the bottom 400. It's not for nothing that more than half of investment grade companies are now rated BBB or lower. Is this something where, you know, we've seen sort of the small cap, you know, valuations kind of blow out relative to large cap, you know, up there with some of the biggest valuation spreads on average? Is it something that that's for a reason and maybe small caps are more exposed and and lower quality or like how do you kind of see some of these companies and this sort of debt reset sort of where they're sitting well so i think about the corporate space very much like the consumer sector where you have the haves and the have-nots and the averages that everyone focuses on really tell you nothing about what's going on you know as you said the average company isn't doing what the top seven companies are and the small caps, obviously, and a totally different universe. So I think it's an error to look at those averages. And that's why I highlighted that cash on the S&P balance sheets, because everyone says, oh, well, don't worry about debt service. There's $2.2 trillion in cash on corporate balance sheets. Corporate balance sheets are strong. Well, no, the top 10 companies are strong. Everyone else is loaded up with debt and has no cash. So that's a problem. And, and bear in mind that these are the top 500 companies. You know, if you broaden the lens out to include all of the companies in the United States, I mean, the top 500 is a very small portion of the, you know, it's the top triangle of the pyramid of companies. You get a very different picture. And that's, I think, something that people miss as relates specifically to the, the small caps. You know, I generally think of them as having two major issues in an environment like this. One is that they're more reliant on debt and not debt that comes from the capital markets. They have to generally get debt from the bank initially, you know, super small caps. Obviously, as you move up to the mid mid caps, et cetera, they can actually raise funds in the capital markets. But generally, when you're going to the bank, you're not getting as good a rate as you would in the capital markets. And then, so they, they're in an environment like this, they're stressed for, for access to credit. And the second thing is they lack the economies of scale to handle increases in input prices like we've seen the way like a Walmart, for example, can manage those kind of margin pressures because they, they can negotiate with their economies of scale. They can really go in and negotiate better terms for their input costs and the smaller businesses can't do that. So those are the two issues I see confronting sort of smaller cap companies. And right now, I don't think there's any reason to believe that those pressures are going to recede. Of course, the market believes that the Fed's going to pivot and rates will immediately come down and inflation is vanquished and everything's good. As we've talked about, I have a high degree of, of skepticism about that. Yeah, I was looking at some of the Cleveland now, and I think, uh, was Cleveland now saying that next month uh, inflation is going to expect it to tick up on the next uh, CPI rating? I think just on the year over year math, it looks like it's kind of bottom. I, I feel like the people that don't pay attention to that, that might catch them by the surprise when they see the headlines, inflation going back up. Yeah, no. And I think, honestly, I think that's why the Fed did that thing where it said, we're going to take a break this meeting but we're not going to take hikes off the table because they know the math. They know last July CPI was zero. And so the odds of us, you know, having a challenging comp this year were pretty high. So I think that's why they, they did that little sachet or whatever you want to call it at the last meeting. 
I love your charts. Macro mavens is a bunch of just, you know, I'm, I'm a chart guy. So you speak to me when you're, uh, when, when you have these giant chart books and you also have great titles too. So in a recent piece, it's getting hot in here, which, uh, was that Nelly? Yes. I was going to say her, but I didn't think a lot of my clients would get that. <laughs> so we got some Nelly and, um, what's interesting, like I love tracking sentiment and, and following it. You know, sometimes it's not super useful. Other times it's, I think, incredibly useful. But you, you've seen some, um, a, a chart that really stood out to me. I always kind of pause and take notice when I see big divergences, particularly if there's a series that goes back decades. And so you had the Michigan Consumer Sentiment versus Consumer Confidence, and you see this massive divergence, which has really never kind of really existed in the last 60 years. Talk to me about where sentiment is today. What do you see? What are these divergences and what's going on? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, both both measures have ticked up in the last month. So I guess it's important to acknowledge that, you know, sentiment has improved. But as you said, the conference board measure, which is called consumer confidence, is really close to its all-time highs. You know, it's at sort of a level that's been uh, associated with prior peaks. While the University of Michigan survey, even though it did pop up in the latest month, is still mired, not even just at a low level, but at the lows that we've seen at the absolute bottom of prior recessions, like the weakest sentiment readings you would see at the bottom of 2000 and 2009. That's where we are for the University of Michigan survey. So the two of them are telling you totally different things. Um, and of course, everyone gloms onto the, the conference board measure when in doubt, you know. But the reality is, as I highlighted on that chart, we have seen divergences, not of the magnitude we're seeing right now, but we have seen divergences in the past between these two surveys. And in each case, it's kind of interesting. They seem to occur right on the eve of a recession and what happens is the conference board number continues to move higher or kind of flat lines while the University of Michigan survey is rolling over. And then eventually the confidence survey catches it on the downside. But it's always that pattern and it's always just on the eve of a recession. So I thought it was worth flagging just because, you know, we've seen this a few times before, not to this degree, but there's something going on there, you know, to have two such starkly different readings on sentiment. And then so I dug in deeper to try to figure out what was driving, for example, the, the recent increase. And it's not too hard to figure out what it is. You know, obviously, when you go through all the detail, you find out that what people felt best about was that their finances relative to inflation were improving. Like they thought that, you know, the odds that inflation outstripped their income, uh, which had been a major concern actually were starting to dissipate. And they, so they, the lower inflation readings, the cooler inflation, especially I would assume at the gas pump, was making them feel better. And then, of course, the stock market coming roaring back. And so you have to believe that those two things are going to continue to sustain or even accelerate from here to anticipate that this gap is going to close by the University of Michigan survey for the first time actually rising to meet the conference board. And, you know, when you look over and oil, well, until today, was back over $80 a barrel and nothing geopolitically or based on our domestic energy policy makes me think that that's necessarily going to go lower anytime soon. 
you know, this idea that light easing of pressures when you go to fill up your gas tank is going to persist seems unlikely. In fact, uh, gasoline prices have already moved up pretty sharply in the last month or so. The uh, the trader in me hates that the White House didn't book their their W, take the profit on their SPR, you know, refill. It seems like a very obvious policy win to say, you know what, we made this amazing trade. We sold it when it was high. We bought it when it was low. It seems like a, a really foolish move to leave it up to free markets to hope that oil is going to continue down as a policy mistake. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, especially if, I mean, are they thinking that their diplomacy is going to persuade everyone to pump a ton of oil for us so we can consume it cheaply? I don't know. I mean, don't get me started on the energy policy because I have, I have nothing constructive or good to say about it. One of the things I like about reading your work is you always have some wonky, for many, economic charts that many will not have heard of. And uh, I love talking to particularly my macro friends when they get all excited about a chart or a topic that's not something that's in my quiver. And so there was some where you were talking about wholesale inventory sales ratio, it's a mouthful, and inventory cycle. What do those mean to you and why, uh, why are they interesting or useful? Well, this is this really is wonky, and it's also very old-fashioned. So I'm revealing myself to be both a nerd and a fuddy-duddy. So, <laughs> but time was, and it's actually, I think, Matt, before you and I were really actively involved in what's going on in the world, when economic cycles were a function of inventories. You know, you'd have an inventory swing where you'd overcorrect in one direction and then go back the other way. So you know, they'd overproduce. And right at the peak in demand, and then they get stuck with a ton of inventory and they'd slash prices and slam the brakes on production and lay off people and you'd have a recession. And then, you know, they'd realize, whoops, we cut production too much. We've got to ramp back up and hire more people. And then you'd have an expansion. And that was the tail wagging the dog of the economy. These days, you know, the tail wagging the dog of the US economy seems to be the stock market, but it's a topic for another day. But the reason I was focusing on inventories is it feeds a lot, obviously, into the corporate profit story for companies that are in the goods business. And this is obviously a good window into how the strength of the consumer as well. So what we had was obviously during COVID, you know, the supply chain issues and no one could get anything. And then the companies were so burned by that that they went out and they ordered five times as much as they normally would to make sure they had a ton of inventory they could you know satisfy everyone's built up consumption that they couldn't you know make use of because the goods weren't there um plus plus and what happened was it turns out they way overestimated the demand that was going to arise after the pandemic ended and so they got stuck with all this inventory and they started slashing prices and trying to move this inventory. And there's this idea that we've completed, you know, they've all managed their inventory so well. But when you look at this wholesale inventory to sales ratio, what you find out is far from it, you know, at the wholesale level, which generally is leads into the retail level at some point, you know, the wholesale inventory to sales ratio has only been this high twice before. And both of those were 
you know, big recessions on the backside. But for sure, you would expect to see a profits recession as that inventory gets liquidated. And in fact, I don't know if it was in that piece that I had that chart, but went back and looked at what an inventory cycle generally means for corporate profits and found that from the peak in the inventory cycle, corporate profits declined 22 percentage points on average, the growth rate of corporate profits. So if we were growing, I think at the peak of the inventory cycle this time, corporate profits were growing 6% year on year. So that would imply that corporate profits will be minus 16% if you assume it's a 22 percentage point swing by the time this inventory finally gets liquidated. That's on nobody's radar right now. It was a year ago, but now everyone has taken that off and you know we're, we're on to good things. So I think it's important because everyone's assumed that the worst is over, as I mentioned, you know, in the second quarter and that inventories aren't an issue. But that chart clearly suggests that they're, they're very much with us still. You mentioned profits. I saw somewhere else you're talking about earnings. What do you think for the second half here and into next year? I think I saw at some point talking about earnings manipulation. What are you thinking about in this picture? Well, I don't try to forecast S&P earnings, so I'll throw out that caveat. But again, revealing myself to be a nerd, I like to look at the government's accounting of corporate profits because S&P earnings not only only reflect the top 500 companies in the country, which, as I mentioned earlier, is just a small sliver of what's going on in the entire nation, but the S&P earnings, it's not any state secret, are heavily influenced by share buybacks. And we've had this torrent of share buybacks over the last several years, less so now that the era of cheap money has come to an end. But, you know, we were doing a trillion dollars plus a year in buybacks. And that was really flattering the S&P earnings numbers. And you saw it when you looked at the, the difference between the profit figures the government was reporting every quarter and the profit figures that S&P was reporting every quarter. And that gap has widened out again, where the government data are showing a much bleaker picture of what's happening with corporate profits than S&P. In fact, I think uh, by the government's accounting, we've been in a profits recession for three quarters, whereas S&P sees it as only two quarters in, and the magnitude is very different. But then there was a, uh, there's an, I think it's Indiana University developed this I don't think they call it a fraud score, but it's a manipulation score for corporate earnings. And they go through and they look at things like, you know, uh, the footnotes and, you know, what they're taking uh, gap versus non-gap and all of that. And basically their score is now the highest it's been since the 1970s. They're warning about earnings manipulation in the S&P numbers. So, they're waving the flag saying, you know, don't believe the hype pretty much, which comports with what I see on the, on the government profit side. Yeah. We're going to dig that up and put it in the show notes. I definitely want to check that out. We've talked a lot about the weird thing companies do. Stock-based compensation has certainly been one that's been a particularly feels egregious this cycle in the tech sector but uh, a very big transfer of wealth from owners of the stock to uh, the executives, for sure. Kudos to the executives. You somehow got this through. One of my pet peeves was when you'd see that they would announce a buyback 
just as the insiders were selling. You know, it's like, talk about greasing the exits for these guys. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, there's been a lot of weird stuff going on. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Idea Farm. Do you want the same investing edge as the pros? The Idea Farm gives you access to some of these same research, usually reserved for only the world's largest institutions, funds, and money managers. These are reports from some of the most respected research shops in investing. Many of them cost thousands and are only available at institutions or investment pros. But now they can be yours with a subscription to the Idea Farm. Are you ready for an edge? Visit theideafarm.com to learn more. There's a couple other areas, you know, that we haven't really focused on that I know crosses your plate. I'm going to kind of let you pick and choose here. So we could go with FX and the dollar and what uh, what do you think's uh, happening there? Or we could go to the shiny metal with gold or we could do both eventually. But which do you want to pick first? Well, I mean, I think they're both related. One's the flip side of the other, basically. <laughs> yeah, with regard to the dollar, my view is that I think for a variety of reasons, the Fed probably isn't going to disappoint people on this expectation that they're going to pivot forthwith for, you know, among the variety of reasons. One would be what we talked about earlier, and that is that the math on the inflation numbers gets a little more challenging such that you could actually see them start to move back up. And for sure, I would think given what we've seen in terms of the recent firming of commodities in general and oil prices in particular, you're going to see input prices go up. And that's going to have the Fed, you know, a little gun shy about reversing course prematurely. So I think that's one reason why, you know, this, in theory, that should be bullish for the dollar. But I think it could end up being a negative because it might feed risk off when people start to realize, hey, you know, the hope we had that the Fed was going to save us isn't really coming. And every day rates reset and another company files for bankruptcy and, you know, things aren't looking so good out here. And that, you know, could lead to a real sell-off that would then be obviously negative for the dollar. But it's an ugly contest. This is why I always like talking about the dollar alongside gold, because it's not really a question of how bad's the dollar, because the dollar sucks, you know, but then look at our deficits and we just got downgraded and blah, blah, blah. But then look at Europe and look at Japan. And, you know, it's not like there's someone else out there uh, is a beacon of fiscal and monetary integrity that we can point to, you know. So we're pretty egregious, but we're not alone. And that's why I always end up coming back to gold and, you know, if you want to get really dark, ultimately, I think that what the Fed will ultimately have to pivot because we'll have a real market correction and that will force them, as they always do, to come rushing in with the fire hoses. But so will Europe and the UK and Japan. And so they'll all run back to the printing presses. And, you know, at some point, and we're seeing it already with this BRIC Plus consortium that's really, I guess they're meeting next month and they're going to talk about a joint currency, they're really saying, you know, we're over it. We don't want to be tied to these world currencies where their central banks are constantly printing money and silently defaulting on the debts that we're basically financing. So, you know, that's sort of my longer term view. And that's why I just, I own gold and I sleep well at night. (laughs) I've been surprised a bit. I'm always surprised about markets, but, you know, I'm surprised gold 
and and the miners both kind of entered some of our momentum based screens over the past year, but has had trouble kind of breaking out over sort of its all time high levels. And I always gold more than anything. I always think about sentiment and the younger crowd and kind of what uh, gets people interested in that versus you know globally and China and India. I don't know, but I always thought it would uh, it, it might have made its move. But then again, I have a lot of Canadian and Australian friends too, so maybe I'm biased because I chat with them too much. Any thoughts there? Is this a good time? Because most, by the way, most investors don't have anything in gold. When we talk to them, real assets in general are pretty low, but gold tends to be a almost a nothing, if anything. Absolutely, and I think in in recent years, rather than making gold a portion of their uh, portfolios, people have been more inclined to buy the cryptocurrencies and view that as a hedge against any kind of debasement of the currency. So I guess that's a topic for another day because I I still don't get into the whole crypto thing at all. But I too, I you know, I share your surprise that gold looked like it was breaking out and then cut smack back down. And it's very frustrating and it's hard to understand why. But I will say last year, as much as gold sort of didn't do very well, relative to what the Fed did last year, I think it was phenomenal as a performance. I mean, if you had told me going in to January 2022 that the Fed would raise rates faster and you know, more dramatically than Paul Volcker did in 1970, which they did on a rate of change basis, they blew Volcker away. I would have been happy if gold had, you know, been down 15%, you know, and thought, well, that was heroic. So I think gold actually performed really well in the face of the Fed tightening. And maybe it's a reflection of the same thing we're seeing in the stock market, that no one believes they'll maintain the tightening. Everyone's convinced that, well, they'll tighten until they break something, and then they're going to rush back in, and we're going to get so much more stimulus than we had before. So maybe that's the thought process, but you know, it's not evident right now. I, it's frustrating, I'll, I'll confess. Yeah. We like to talk about ideas and concepts that are sort of non-consensus. And you've already mentioned a handful. But if you look around at your peers in this world, a view that you particularly hold that the vast majority of your peers would disagree with, or that's just largely non-consensus. And you probably got a lot, but anything in particular that comes to mind, either it could be something right now, or maybe it's a tactic. You say, look, I love this certain indicator or this way of thinking that no one else likes? Anything come to mind? I mean, I don't know if it's that I hold ideas, but maybe I focus on things that other people don't think are important. Like that whole thing, which I probably, you know, went too off the deep end, but the whole thing about diminishing marginal returns, like to me, that's really crucial. And it frames a lot of my outlook for the economy. You know, you need a certain amount of credit to generate a certain amount of growth. And if you don't get that amount of credit, you're just not going to get the growth. So, you know, when people come up with these immaculate recovery forecasts, my first question is, where is it going to come from? You know, this diminishing marginal returns thing is real and it's empirical. You can quantify it. So how come you ignore it every time you develop a forecast? You know, so that would be one thing. Another thing, and this will sound really silly, but I draw a distinction between asset inflation and wealth creation. 
And I think those are two very distinct things. And we get into these environments where people conflate asset inflation with wealth creation. And they assume, for example, that a bubble is actually, you know, like we saw with the housing market in 2005, six, a perfect example. We had rampant asset inflation. It was a bubble. It wasn't wealth. And we learned that the hard way when it evaporated. So I think it's important to draw that distinction. And I guess it's sort of a cross that I bear because I am often painted as a perma bear. And my retort to that is, I'm not a perma bear. I'll be bullish the day the Fed stops manipulating with the markets. That's when I'll be bullish, when it's a real market, when it's a fundamentally driven rally, not some sugar high that's based on the Fed continuing to pump money into it. You may call that a bull market. I call it a bubble. You know, it's like, to me, that's a distinction. And so, you know, I get beaten up for that, but I just don't find that to be a compelling investment backdrop. I'd rather, you know, own gold. And in fact, since 2007, gold and the S&P have performed exactly the same. So they can call me a perma bear, but in real terms, I'm doing just as well, you know, as they are. Maybe it's kind of a nuance for looking at the markets and it may be a road to poverty, (laughs) but I just, I can't get out of my head that, you know, there's a difference. I want to buy into a market that has strong fundamentals, not that is reliant on Jay Powell coming to the rescue every time it stubs its toe. You know, kind of what you mentioned a little bit, when we think of very long-term measures of sentiment and kind of the way people behave was you have a chart and it's one of my favorites is stocks as a percentage of household assets. And it looks a lot like the S&P, you know, price, because as it goes up, they own more, as it goes down, they own less, but it has an incredibly high correlation to future returns, obviously in the inverse. So when people are most allocated, but in part of that's just simply valuation, right? When stocks get really expensive, 2000, COVID peak, you know, your future returns are probably lower because you're buying a, a kind of infinite stream of cash flows. And that chart to me is near or at all time highs uh, relative to history and higher than 2000. Absolutely. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate that. People will argue, well, that's just the top 20% of households that have all the equity assets, but it's not really true because the average Joe has a pension and those pensions are loaded up with stocks and junk bonds, I might add, and increasingly private debt and levered loans and all the stuff that's opaque and likely toxic. So there too, they're chasing those returns at exactly the point where they're about to flip back the other way. So it's, you know, everyone's going to get hit by the reverse wealth effect, not just the people at the high end. We did a tweet today that was a retweet poll of one three years ago. And I'm just, I'm always asking these to kind of just gauge sentiment and see what people are thinking. And sometimes they're like historical quizzes. But one today was, I said, do you own US stocks? And so far the result was 95%. And these results are the same as three years ago, by the way. Would you continue to own US stocks if they hit a 10-year P.E. ratio of 50, which is higher than they've ever been in history in the U.S. They got up to like 45, I think, in 99. And three quarters of people say yes. And then I said, would you continue to hold them if they hit 100? So double the internet bubble, higher than Japan in the 80s, 
And, you know, half the people still say yes. And so there's definitely like, you know, a cult of buy at any price, hold at any price, valuation be damned, which to me is a little odd. It, by the way, goes against what Bogle would say. A lot of people think that Bogle was only a buy and holder, but that's actually not true. And so I think part of that, like if we do that after, during a 50% drawdown, it's probably going to be a different response in the opposite, which is more detrimental because that's what, you know, you should probably be more interested at that point. But it, I think it's a good description of the times of this cult of stocks at any price. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's contagious, you know, the FOMO, it's very hard not to get swept up in it. Uh, and then in times like this, if you're not swept up in it, not only do you feel like you're missing out, but you feel like a moron, you know, when everyone's out there saying, oh, obviously we're not going to have a recession. This is going to be fine. And suddenly everyone left the room and you're still standing there like, wait, guys, <laughs> what did I miss? It's challenging, but I don't know. It's a classic. As, well. as we've kind of done a tour of the world, um, any thoughts generally on positioning? You know, we've touched on just about everything. Should we just T-bill and chill? That's a great one. A lot of advisors I was talking to in the spring were just kind of like, hey, I'm just hanging out in cash and see what's kind of going on. Any other things that we haven't talked about maybe that you want to touch on or any implications that you think are particularly important? Well, the T-bill thing I think is worth underscoring because especially right now when you, there's so much uncertainty. We don't know what the Fed's going to do. We don't really know if we're going to have a recession or not. There's so much, you know, the election next year, blah, blah, blah. You can get five and a half percent in a six month T-bill. On a investment grade bond, you get 574. I'm looking at my screen. So you're chasing risk for 25 basis points. And, you know, to me, that just is so ridiculous. I, you couldn't pay me to buy an investment grade bond. I'm so happy sitting in cash and waiting for evidence, you know, one direction or the other. I don't need to be a hero. Just give me some time to sit on the sidelines and gather more information. You're getting paid to wait. But other than T-bills, which, you know, I like, I think one area that could be interesting, and it, it does kind of relate back to the whole topic of the dollar and, and gold, et cetera, is the BRICS and this August 22nd BRIC Plus meeting that they're having where there have been rumored to announce a currency that will reference gold. And they have apparently been you know, spending not just the last few months, but years, over a decade, working together to develop an infrastructure, financial, economic, geopolitical, they're coordinating on all of these things. And so I think that meeting, even if they don't announce a currency, you know, that references gold or anything really substantive like that, I think it may start to draw attention to how much work these guys have done in building a cohesive unit and the degree to which the West has really ignored this uh, to their own detriment. You know, we kind of have this hubris that these are just snotty upstart countries who never will have any chance of competing with us. Well, as it is now, the number of existing BRIC countries and the ones that are applying for membership control 54% of GDP on a purchasing power parity basis. So they're already larger than the G7 economies that think that they're in control of everything. 
so it's a huge deal. And I'm just, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the meeting and what the market reaction is to it. Because I think that people have really, you know, global investors have really kind of underestimated the potential from this group, especially relative to what's going on in the West. You know, to, you talk about how everyone's got allocations to stocks. Look at what share of global investors are allocated to G7 stock markets, you know, EFA markets versus the emerging markets. And it's a joke. And it never changes. It's not like it suddenly becomes meaningful, even for a blip. It's just static. Maybe back in 2007, you know, we, um, we do a lot of tweeting about that. And I feel like it's just sort of yelling into the void about, you know, the US used to be a little upstart country not too long ago and was not anywhere near the largest stock market beginning of the, the 20th century. And we do a lot of tweets on, on do you own emerging markets? And it's, you know, I think the average Goldman says 3% of the stock allocation versus a market cap of, let's call it 12. And as you mentioned, one of my favorite polls is, you know, how much of the world is emerging market GDP? And everyone's like 10%, 20 <laughs> a little higher, a little higher. But historically, GDP weighting equity markets has not been a bad strategy either uh, versus market cap weighting, which uh, tends to get you exposed to these little big, big bubbles every once in a while. Stephanie, uh, we love to ask our guests, what's been your most memorable investment? Good, bad, in between? Okay, well, I sublimate all the bad ones, so we'll just go right to the good ones. <laughs> I guess my most memorable investment would be my first apartment purchase in New York. And I bought an apartment, if anyone is familiar with New York, on Gramercy Park, which is the only private park in the city and had a key to the park and whatever. Um, so in terms of location, 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 I, I did well on that. And I bought it in 2002, just as the housing bubble was starting to inflate. And I remember about a year into it, realizing, you know, this really isn't going to be where I'm going to live forever because... There's a lot of young families with kids and they were in the park and you weren't allowed to eat in the park or have dogs in the park. Or basically it was like, why am I living on this park with a bunch of families and I don't have a family and I can't go in there with my dog and have lunch. So I started thinking about selling it. And then the guy in the apartment right below me listed his for 50% more than I had paid just one year earlier. And I thought, that's insanity. You know, this is crazy. You, you got to take this profit all day. So I listed my apartment and sold it for about that much more than I paid for it and went on to rent and schmuck that I am rented for the next 18 years. <laughs> hey, Ramit Sethi, one of our uh, personal finance gurus would, would love to hear that. He's always talking about the rent versus buy as, as a, uh, there's a lot of romance when it comes to real estate ownership. If it is my version of an absolute nightmare to be managing other properties, I can barely deal with or own stuff. But the, the the real estate crowd, my God, God bless you. You cannot force me to get into that world. Yeah, no, no, no. I am so with you, Meb. I said, you know, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I wouldn't buy anything. I wouldn't buy a house. I would stay at nice hotels everywhere I went or rent a place or whatever. I don't want to own anything. I would fly private absolutely everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, the Mega Millions is up to $1.2 So uh, maybe, maybe there's, there's a, there's a chance. chance for us both. Oh. 
Stephanie, this has um, been a whirlwind tour. Uh, you've been awesome. Oh, thank you. You know, can release you into the uh, Colorado afternoon to go hiking. What are you going to do? You got any plans? I was going to hike, but as we started talking, it it's raining now. So we, we got those monsoon rains rolling in now. You know, it's already, summer is so short. It's August 1st or whatever it is, and it's already cold. So... <laughs> I saw the hailstorm from Red Rocks made national news. So that's like right down the road from my mom. Tell us a little bit where people go to find out more about you, read your work, watch what you're talking about, sign up, where they go. Cool. Thank you. Um, well, I they can go to macromavens.com and learn all about you know my background and read some reports and subscribe. And uh, in terms of following me, I'm on Twitter although I'm not the most aggressive tweeter. Actually, what do we call it now? Xing? Xer. I'm an Xer. Oh, God. Know. Something like that. <laughs> but it's at S Palm Boy. And then, you know, just look for me on wonderful things like this. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you, Mavis. Yeah, and your uh, well-behaved English bulldog didn't even make a peep, who also makes a, an appearance on your Twitter. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, uh Hopefully we get to hang out in the real world soon. Last time I saw you, I think, was in Sonoma, Napa, drinking some wine in wine country. Who knows where it'll be next time. But um, thanks so much for joining us today. Sounds good. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.